Good morning and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M. And this week we're going to be covering Volume 11, Issue 51, which corresponds with the uh, Coronavirus Update Number 50. And we're also going to do Volume 12, Issue Number 1, or Letter Number 1, which corresponds with Coronavirus Update Number 51. So let's get started with the free thoughts. Let's start to settle into the reality that COVID is the new baseline for infectious disease annoyance in the world. It will likely take over for the flu as the annual troublemaker from here on out. And such is life. It's also amazing to think that there has been enough data and discussion to fill 50 newsletters up until this point on one disease. Again, such as life and such as COVID. So North Carolina remains in relative normalcy in most places as of the writing of this newsletter, which was a couple weeks ago on December 6th. Things have changed a little bit over the next coming weeks, as we'll talk about. But at the time of this writing, things were relatively normal. The northern states were starting to enter some significant winter-like conditions. We're seeing significant increases in case volume. And Europe was also seeing similar spikes based on the colder climate, pushing people indoors and increasing case volume. There was a slight increase in the seven-day moving average of cases for the United States um, beginning on October 24th of this year and has progressed. The good news is that hospitalizations and deaths have not tracked along with this average, as we will get into later. The cases are still uncoupled for the vaccinated individuals as Delta remains the main COVID-19 variant for now, but Omicron is the new headache of unknowns. If you have had two doses of mRNA vaccine or had previous natural infection, you have a very, very, very small risk of significant hospitalization and therefore death from Delta variant based on statistics overall. The caveat remains that these realities are left untrue when we see that that a person reinfected has advancing age, metabolic disease, or other comorbid condition that puts them at risk based on the chronicity of this disease for potential negative outcomes. There's a good article in the Wall Street Journal on natural versus vaccine-induced immunity that you can go to if you go to SalisburyPediatrics.com website and click the link in the Health and Wellness Newsletter tab for this corresponding newsletter. As it stands of uh, December 6th, the total United States case volume was at 47.9 million, and there were 782,000 deaths. So in coronavirus update number 50, we started to notice that now there was a new variant detected in South Africa, and this variant was now called a variant of concern. They called it Omicron, or B1.1.529. And it has 30 plus mutations, many of which are in the spike protein region, making it a possible player for vaccine evasion. But this was not proven at the time of this writing. In the next few weeks, the vaccine companies will test the vaccine against the new variant and we will have more data. One vaccine company, Novavax, is apparently making a vaccine already against this new variant. It's very, if this variant does turn out to be a vaccine evader, we will look at three plus months for a new vaccine to be made to combat the new viral variant. Oh, and you know, these are really truly interesting times that we are living through. And it's amazing to think that they never stop writing about coronavirus. Incredible. Some things I would have never imagined two years ago when I would write about new topics every week. <laughs> it's just incredible. 
So what do we know as of the writing of this newsletter around coronavirus and the new variant Omicron? Number one, Omicron accounts for the majority of tested samples in South Africa as of November, meaning that it appears to be outcompeting Delta for the previously uninfected or immunity-waned post-infection or vaccine situations. This is likely a new mutation induced fitness advantage, making it unlikely to be more Delta as it is more infectious, but that is a guess. Two, we have zero solid evidence yet that there is m- that it is more or less deadly. Early reports out of South Africa are that it is not more dangerous. It is primarily infecting the under 45-year-old age group because they are the least vaccinated group and most interactive. This would be in keeping with predictions that mutations will offer more infectiousness or severity, but not both. However, the morbidity and mortality related or excuse me, the morbidity and mortality reality for the U.S. will only be understood here as we have a much less healthy population in general than South Africa and almost everywhere else on planet Earth. Number three, Omicron is now in the United States and will declare itself in the coming weeks as a more fit version in our population or a pretender, but it looks to be significantly more fit than Delta. Number four, Omicron shares mutations with a variant Delta, but it has a dozen novel mutations on its spike protein. Omicron has 32 mutations in this region overall. This is the largest number that I have seen to date. There is legitimate concern that it will reduce the ability of our current infection or vaccine-induced antibodies to neutralize it, making our mRNA vaccines less effective or not even effective at all. Apparently, the mutations are all in the locations of the spike antibody binding sites. This really makes vaccine and prior infection evasion possible and maybe even likely. This is a big problem. But if and only if we see more deaths and hospitalizations from it, I fear that the unvaccinated and previously uninfected are in trouble. Everyone else is a massive guess right now. Number five, quote, on the bright side, antibodies taken from people who are first naturally infected and then vaccinated were still able to neutralize the synthetic Omicron type virus in the lab. That suggests a booster dose of an mRNA vaccine may still provide robust protection against Omicron. That comes from... Uh, uh, Mishra S. et al. 2021. This tells me if we have circulating antibodies from an mRNA vaccine, we will have a jump start in the new variant, and this will significantly limit viral load and thus disease severity. Again, this is a guess as this is lab-based analysis and not in vivo. Herd immunity is highly unlikely now, and we are going to have to get used to SARS-2 from here on out. Delta and now likely Omicron are both likely to be to have a reproductive rate of six or more, which makes the need for global immunization to be at 90 to 95% for a chance at some reasonable societal immunity. Many experts are predicting yearly viral spikes of SARS-2 in the lines of influenza or possibly even greater. Hopefully, as statistics seem to show, we will see less and less death and hospitalization as more people are vaccinated or have survived previous infection. Thus, it is likely that we are heading into the nuisance, nuance phase of the pandemic or now endemic disease state. Lots of illness with less and less morbidity year upon year. Hopefully, as the hospitalization death data continue to show uncoupled situations from circulating case volume or infections, we will see the CDC and state officials work back to a more normalized society. Omicron could really mess up any of these plans, and that is something we'll have to watch. Another big issue remains the lack of vaccination in developing and larger population-based countries around the world. 
These are the hotbeds of variant development, including new variants that have occurred in Brazil, India, South Africa, and others so far in this pandemic. We need to prioritize vaccinating first-timers over boosters for healthy, fully vaccinated adults. So let's move on to the quick hits overall. Number one, SARS-CoV-2 infection induces neutralizing antibodies in all lean, but only in a few obese COVID-19 patients. SARS-CoV-2 infection also induces anti-MDA and anti-AD autoimmune antibodies more in lean than obese patients as compared to uninfected controls. Serum levels of autoimmune antibodies, however, are always higher in obese versus lean COVID-19 patients. Moreover, because the autoimmune antibodies found in serum samples of COVID-19 patients have been correlated with serum levels of C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation, we also evaluated the association of anti-MDA and anti-AD antibodies with serum CRP and found a positive association between CRP and autoimmune antibodies. The conclusions are, our results highlight the importance of evaluating the quality of the antibody response in COVID-19 patients with obesity, particularly the presence of autoimmune antibodies in and identity and identify markers of self-tolerance breakdown. This is crucial to protect this vulnerable population at higher risk of responding poorly to infection with SARS-CoV-2 than lean controls. That comes to us from an article by Frasca et al. in 2021. Obesity remains the greatest factor of risk for all-cause cancer, diabetes, autoimmunity, and coronary cardiac diseases. The greatest risk factor for obesity is a combination of high-fat, high-refined sugar diets, high-fructose corn syrup, sedentary behavior, chemical exposure, and chronic unremitting stress. Tackling each one will go a long way toward healing the risk for most diseases, including COVID. Quick hit number two, obesity research. The author state, and I quote, We identify two cellular targets of SARS-CoV-2 infection in adipose tissue, mature adipocytes and adipose tissue macrophages. Adipose tissue macrophage infection is largely restricted to highly inflammatory subpopulation of macrophages present at baseline. That is further activated in response to SARS-CoV-2 infection. Preadipocytes, while not infected, adopt a pro-inflammatory phenotype. We further demonstrate that SARS-CoV-2 RNA is detectable in adipocytes in COVID-19 autopsy cases and is associated with inflammatory infiltrates. This comes to us from Martinez Cologne et al. 2021. What this research tells us is that pre-infection, obese individuals have fat cells that are polarized toward an immune inflammatory state that then is further polarized post-viral exposure. These same fat cells can be infected by SARS-2 and further inflame the local tissue through tissue-specific macrophages that release cell immune signaling cytokines. This will turn on a loop cascade of inflammation that we see of as worsening disease. The phenotypes of these cytokines that are elevated in these studies is consistent with the severe COVID disease state. Number three, quote, super spreading events have distinguished the COVID-19 pandemic from the early outbreak of the disease. Our studies of exhaled aerosols suggest that a critical factor in these and other transmission events is the propensity of certain individuals to exhale large numbers of small respiratory droplets. Our findings indicate that the capacity of airway lining mucus to resist breakup on breathing varies significantly between individuals. 
with a trend to increasing with the advance of COVID-19 infection and body mass index multiplied by age. Understanding the source and variance of respiratory droplet generation and controlling it via the stabilization of airway lining mucous surfaces may lead to effective approaches at reducing COVID-19 infection and transmission, end quote. That comes to us from Edwards et al. 2021. So roughly 20% of infected individuals were super spreaders, where 80% were minimal spreaders, which is in line with previous studies. The part that is most interesting is that the age and obesity correlation that exists. Advanced age and obesity carry a common theme of weakened immune activity. This allows for higher viral loads and increased viral shedding. So, again, we see the same pattern. Comorbidity disease associated with worse disease, associated with more risk for super spreading, associated with more outcome negativity. Number four, autoimmune reactions are underlying acute psychiatric changes in adolescents post-COVID infection. When a child has abrupt onset of hallucinations, anxiety, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder that comes on following diseases like PANS or PANDAS, we are now learning that the etiology is autoimmune antibodies attacking brain cellular tissue, inducing the symptoms that we are seeing. Even schizophrenic symptoms are to be potentially related to autoimmune attacks in COVID patients, even in mild COVID respiratory disease. The antibody targets the neural tissue, and certain targets are known to be like TCF4, which can appear to look like schizophrenia. These are very interesting new understandings for us about what we used to think were just psychiatric disease of genetics. And they're not only that. They can be turned on by infections if you have the right host genetics and the right immune polarization. Number five, if you are interested in an article on the current state of COVID treatments for severe disease, there is an article in Annals of Internal Medicine that is a great place to start. It's written by Boggiano, B-O-G-G-I-A-N-O, et al., 2021. Again, you can get the link on the newsletter. Number six, we will get into this topic a bit deeper down the road when I interview Dr. Rick Johnson in January, but let's look at this briefly now. His work on fructose metabolism, driving uric acid elevations and subsequent damage to the kidneys that we see of as high blood pressure is intriguing for these reasons. One, high fructose corn syrup and the beverages that are made from it and sugars are consumed in high volumes the metabolite uric acid will rise, which triggers the innate immune system locally to make inflammasomes and reactive oxygen radicals like hydrogen peroxide, which cause local inflammation and damage to mitochondria and cells in general. These cells can undergo apoptosis or programmed cell death, which can inadvertently present self tissue to the adaptive immune system, driving autoimmune antibody development. This is now being shown to be a major mechanism in the development of high blood pressure as kidney cells are being targeted by autoimmune antibodies. B, if humans or a human consumes lots of liquid sugar as soda or juice coupled to added sugar and processed foods, then it is likely or even highly likely that multiple pathways are disrupted, including the intestinal microbiome, glucose and fat metabolism, immune solvency and activity. The innate immune activation from uric acid, dysbiosis in the gut and fat tissue, will drive a low-level endotoxemia that will worsen the initial SARS-2 viral surveillance and killing response, followed by an overloaded immune inflammatory response that will tear up a lot of our de novo tissue. 
This disrupted tissue will lead to self-antigen presentation and autoantibody formation. Thus, we have precursor risk with our dietary behavior. Once again, mechanisms of risk are presented here to give you, the reader, a pathway to the why we must change our behavior now as it relates to fructose, high fructose corn syrup, and other refined sugars. C. Dr. Johnson believes that we should consume zero sugar beverages or fructose-based beverages. We should limit our consumption of fruit on a daily basis to a cup of berries or a like fruit. We should try to rid ourselves of the processed foods as they contain lots of hidden sugars. D. I believe that these metabolic pathways are the reasons behind the increased risk of COVID from, excuse me, increased risk of death from COVID for Americans that have comorbid diseases of obesity and metabolic syndrome. Okay, number seven. In a French study, looking at the risk of SARS-2 transmission at indoor concerts with effective masking, three-day pre-event negative PCR, and optimized ventilation in 18 to 14, excuse me, 18 to 45-year-old persons with no comorbid disease, they, at this study, did not find any increased risk of incidence of infection between thousands of event-goers and match controls. This comes to us from Delaguerre et al., 2021, D-E-L-A-U-G-E-R-R-E. The value of this study is that we can use these and other studies as metrics to assess risk in large venues. As with airplanes, I am in the camp that ventilation and masking makes a big difference in closed quarter environments. It truly is a Swiss cheese model whereby multiple preventative modalities stack upon each other for risk prevention. Number eight, in the New England Journal of Medicine, a group studied reinfections with COVID and Cutter. They found that reinfections reduced hospitalization or death 90% versus primary infections. Four reinfections were severe enough to lead to acute care hospitalization, but not in ICU, and none ended in death. The group noted that reinfections were rare and mild. This comes to us from Abba Radad et al., ABA hyphen R-A-D-D-A-D, 2021. These facts, again, are not surprising as SARS-2 primed immune system responds more rapidly to the new viral exposure, reducing viral load and risk. Number nine, a nice review of the DIVINE study by Dr. Todd Rice looks at the use of hydrolyzed formulas with low carbohydrate loads in critically ill patients. The end result, as would be expected, is reduced insulin use and better metabolic metrics, which are associated with better outcomes. This is worth keeping an eye on if a family member of yours is admitted for COVID critical care concerns and has issues with glucose control like diabetes or insulin resistance in general. These decisions about what nourishment to provide a person can reduce risk factors downstream of inflammation. Okay, moving on to section two. In a very interesting article in The Atlantic, a group of writers discuss life with kids in the COVID endemic world. Here's a snippet. Quote, Becca Rosen, I've been trying to make the case among my friends and to colleagues that getting COVID is not a sign of personal failure. We live in a society with illness and we don't blame people when they get the flu. We have to learn to not see getting COVID as a moral failure. Because this is something we have to live with. And the truth is that we will all be exposed. To go back to what Julie was saying, the practical disruption of a COVID infection to people's lives is so much worse than the, with RSV or with flu because of the policies we have in place. So it seems like we're in a spot where we really, really do need to update our policies for our COVID endemic world, especially with our testing infrastructure still really dysfunctional. Even testing negative to return to school after COVID exposure can mean days out of work for a parent, 
For a lot of parents, that's just not tenable. Articles written by Lascaux uh, et al. 2021 in The Atlantic. The article goes a long way to highlight the frustrations of many working parents in the new world of COVID testing to return to school. Missing a few days every time a child has a sniffles while we wait for a COVID result is difficult and highly frustrating. This entire reality encourages people to not discuss any symptoms other than fever with a daycare or school in order to avoid the obligatory two to three days at home waiting on a PCR result. We have seen this frustration play out over and over again in our clinic. It is real. The policies will need to change lest we live in constant disruption of education for our children and work for the adults. What we need is faster and more reliable testing measures in school or daycare or at home to help reduce risk transmission. We need some sense of normalcy. On the topic of normalcy, Sarah Zhang wrote a piece on returning to life in an endemic COVID world. She makes many of the same points that Monica Gandhi makes. We need to curtail our public policy. And you can find her article, Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G, in the Atlantic as well. There is some more information in this newsletter on the specific mutations in Omicron spike protein that you can read. I'm not going to read them out for this audio cast, but you're welcome to go to salisburypediatrics.com and click on uh, this specific COVID newsletter. And there's a whole section there on um, the tight details of the science behind the spike protein mutations. And there's also a redisplay of the associations between diet and death um, that I think are very important if people want to go read them. But they were in the audio cast for two weeks ago as well. Okay, moving on to Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, Volume 12, Letter Number 1, which corresponds with Coronavirus Update Number 51. So this is the beginning of Year 12, and of course, it starts with COVID. Go figure. What we're learning so far is that Omicron appears less deadly and more contagious. The timing of this newsletter, audiocast, was written on December 20th and recorded a week later, so you'll realize that the data is a little bit behind um, because uh, things have changed within 10 days. But suffice it to say that as of the recording of this, early reports are showing vast increases in spread rate, but also significant reductions in lung-based inflammation and disease. If these early reports play out to be true, we are in for a nice denouement to this pandemic endemic situation. Fingers crossed. North Carolina remains in relative normalcy in most places. The northern United States and especially the cities are now entering winter-like conditions and are seeing significant increases across the country. Europe is also continuing to see significant large spikes. The seven-day moving average continues to rise after beginning on October 24th. The good news remains, hospitalizations and deaths are uncoupled from both Delta and Omicron at this point. As of the Writing of this newsletter, there are 51 million known cases in the United States and 805,000 deaths now. So let's briefly do an overview of what we know about Omicron as of December 20th, 2021. It appears that Omicron is now everywhere, and this was expected. It's outcompeting Delta and probably at one point in time will be the only variant remaining but we'll see. Hospitalizations and deaths remain completely decoupled from cases, meaning that we are on our way to mild COVID endemicity. 
your risk of death if you have had COVID naturally or have been vaccinated appears now to be very, very, very low with both Omicron and Delta. The caveat to this case is that if you are older, over 65, with a comorbid disease and in a significant stage of that comorbid disease, your risk of death is significantly higher no matter what. But this is also true for influenza and many other viral illnesses. So the reality remains that the inflammation that pervades your body is the main risk factor for death. The virus just happens to be a trigger to cause trouble. There is good news. There are two new antivirals being approved by the FDA that can be taken to prevent bad outcomes for those at high risk. However, I am, as always, pushing for lifestyle alterations now in all people to reduce all risk of death, no matter what the infectious agent is or just comorbid disease in general. Boosting is a serious question mark at this time for me. We need more data on how pathologic the breakthrough infections are with regards to disease morbidity, not just spread, i.e. we need hospital data based on age and disease risk. A positive test with mild symptoms may be just that, maybe just a positive test, no big deal. We have no a priori knowledge on the long-term risks of three mRNA vaccines in a calendar year. We have zero knowledge of this. As always, to boost is a personal choice based on the science, age, and risk. Getting vaccinated, if not already vaccinated, makes incredible sense at this point. And again, I am a pro-vaccine person, but I am also pro-thought-based person. And so for me, if you are at high risk for a bad outcome, boosting makes a lot of sense, even if we don't have great safety data long-term. But if not, maybe not. But again, that's just everyone's decision. I'm just giving you the data and what I understand. The rest of the world needs vaccine at this point, right? So if they've not had vaccines in Africa and India and Brazil where these mutations are starting and they're getting recurrent pandemic-type situations there with lots of viral spread, they're going to have more mutations. So we're going to keep chasing our tail. So for me, I think we should be thinking hard about sending some of these booster doses overseas for the people that don't really need them and saving the booster doses for those folks that have high, high risk. Just a thought. I am 100% in favor of keeping schools open regardless of spread rate unless we see an increase in hospitalizations or deaths. Children do not need to be out of school anymore if we're not seeing hospitalization and death. Mild endemic disease, just like the flu and all the other things, does has not historically closed schools, so I'm not quite sure why I would ever consider that anymore. Most importantly, every decision from here on out has to be based on the mental health of humans in this country as a part of all the calculus decisions from here on out. Fear of COVID is not a good decision-making guidance tool. It is not now, and it likely never was. Risk calculation and personal health are important. I was speaking to some medical students about their personal fear of COVID when I was teaching. They really should have none. They are young, healthy, and doubly vaccinated. Risk is less than almost anything else that they would do on a daily basis, including logfold risk less than driving a car. So we need to keep everything in context as we make decisions moving forward, societally, individually, or as a small group. 
Monica Gandhi, who is one of my favorite writers right now, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco, writes, and I quote, Dear readers, the last few weeks since Thanksgiving have been a roller coaster with a lot of panic reporting about Omicron that seems to be settling. Omicron more transmissible, most likely, but all evidence points out to more mild infection, presumably due to more immunity, although cannot rule out less virulent. And all reports very different than Delta emergence. Holidays can be spent together with this an important to have nuanced harm reduction approach starting in 2022 to COVID-19. Thanks, Monica, end quote. I tell you, I could not agree more. Spend a loving and social holiday season with your loved ones. Really give thanks for survival and the beauty of this country. Hug your kids often, even when they're imperfect and or frankly pains. Hugs and love will cure almost all ills, including teenager brain. I've decided that I can do much more with hugs and love than I can do with directives and pressure in this age group. Marty McCary writes, quote, the immediate reflex to give healthy young people a third vaccine dose to protect against Omicron is not supported by data, nor is it necessary for anyone who has natural immunity based on the studies we have to date, end quote. Okay, let's move on to the quick hits. Number one, Omicron is vastly more infectious than Alpha and Delta. The United Kingdom officials have noted and pegged the in-home spread rate of Omicron is three times that of Delta, which is impressive as Delta had a reproductive rate of six. Omicron is likely close to chickenpox or measles at this point. Quote, the researchers found that Omicron SARS-CoV-2 infects and multiplies 70 times faster than the Delta variant and original SARS-CoV-2 in human bronchus, which may explain why Omicron may transmit faster between humans than previous variants. Their study also showed that Omicron infection in the lung is significantly lower than the original SARS-CoV-2, which is an indicator of lower disease severity. Chi et al. 2021. C-H-I-W-A-I. So, Omicron enters the cells faster and also replicates much faster than Delta because of the new and improved mutations in the spike protein. The in-lab studies show that the virus is attacking the bronchi, large lung tubes, and not the terminal lung tissue, which is a good sign if it bears out to be the same in infected patients. The anecdotal data appears to support this in-lab data. This would mean likely less death because less lung fluid would build up, causing difficulties with breathing if the inflammation is primarily in the larger lung tubes and not in the terminal alveolar sacs. This is great news. Number two, it appears that vaccine evasion and general lasting immunity against COVID variant Omicron is not good based on most early reports. However, this is not to say that we are at increased risk of hospitalization or death unless one is already close to this spot by a personal history of significant metabolic disease. Our T and B cells have been educated to many variant changes. As the T and B cells are migrating to the lymph nodes for training, they will pass through many layers of education to protein changes in the spike protein, giving us lasting circulating cells with the machinery to crank out lots of antibodies as soon as these changes arrive, as with a variant like Omicron. The initial response may be suboptimal for preventing disease at all, but the final response is likely to be robust and effective against hospitalization and death, which is really, frankly, all that matters. Number three. A really interesting, excuse me, a really interesting perspective on viral mutations, randomness, in the New York Times by Dr. Andrew Pikosh is worth your time. He says in his opinion piece, as someone who studies viruses, I often hear the phrase, a dead host is not a good host, or some version of that. 
This is probably true for most viruses, and certainly if a virus killed every person infected, it would eventually run out of hosts, which is not a good thing for the virus. But what is really important is how efficiently the virus spreads. Does making a person very ill provide the virus with some advantage that makes transmission more effective? If the answer to that question is yes, then the virus may continue to make people severely ill because that strategy works. But there's no high-level thinking involved here. All viruses mutate, and those mutations occur randomly. A good portion of those mutations don't affect the virus's ability to replicate or spread at all. It is these mutations that give the variant a unique fingerprint that can be used to trace chains of transmission and understand how it is spreading locally and globally. Mutations that limit the virus's ability to replicate are rarely detected because those variants can't compete with the original virus and quickly go extinct. Every once in a while, the virus will acquire a mutation that gives it an advantage. Those mutations can affect many different things. But in the end, if this mutated virus can transmit better than the starting virus, there is a good chance that it will go on to become the dominant variant. This is essentially Darwinian evolution by natural selection performed over weeks or months instead of thousands of years. Will COVID-19 become more milder over time? The answer to that question is most likely yes, but it may not have anything to do with the virus evolving to induce milder disease. Scientists now know that SARS-CoV-2 can, at least to some degree, reinfect people who were previously infected or vaccinated. The combination of prior infections and vaccinations are building immunity in the population. This immunity isn't perfect because it can't block infections completely, but it does dampen the disease the virus can induce by shortening the time of infection, reducing the amount of virus that is produced, and therefore reducing the symptoms of disease. This piece is an opinion, but a solid historical precedence for this reason. As I stated many times in the past two years, SARS-2 fitness remains a push to higher infectiousness above all. The number of naive hosts that are infected, the more mutational events will occur. Thus, it remains a logistical problem for the G8 countries to now prioritize vaccination of the parts of the world with low vaccination rates. We should not be so focused on boosters for healthy low-risk Americans and Europeans over unvaccinated global enclaves. Number four, hospitalization and not cases should drive all public policy now. In a well-done essay in the New York Times by Monica Gandhi and Leslie Bynan, Take this topic to task. Quote, this becomes especially important as case counts become more complicated. A case of COVID-19 doesn't mean what it used to if you are vaccinated. Most breakthrough infections, which will grow as the number of vaccinated people increases, so far remain mild. Although antibodies wane over time and their effectiveness may be affected by variants, TNB cells generated from vaccines should continue to offer protection against severe disease. Right now, in areas of high vaccination, an increase in cases does not necessarily signal a comparable increase in hospitalizations or deaths. That's from Monica Gandhi at All 2021. This is also true for previously infected with natural disease, as South Africa and England are now demonstrating. Quote, Singapore, one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, started focusing its daily COVID reports on hospitalizations rather than cases in September. Its health ministry reported recently that over the previous 28 days, 41,632 people were infected, 98.7% had mild or no symptoms. This again from Gandhi et al. Therefore, in a highly vaccinated cohort, 1.3% have more than mild disease, most of which will not die or be hospitalized. Again, we see a decoupling of severity with vaccination. The major issue here is that 
though our primary schools, universities, and businesses are putting in old-school mitigation measures where new policies are needed. A fully vaccinated, healthy young person that is masked in school is an exceedingly low spread risk, even if positive, unless they have significant symptoms. The school should prioritize education at this point, unless we see new data that Omicron is spreading, even with mild disease. Fully vaccinated and masked in a young and healthy cohort. Times are different now. We need a different approach. It's amazing that we're seeing schools like Cornell, highly educated, Top-shelf schools shutting down campuses based on COVID cases despite completely mild disease in their population and no hospitalizations or death following. To what end is the policy? In the pandemic's beginning, preventing hospitalization and death remained the markers of policy variance. Now the goalposts have moved. The argument to close lacks muster now in a vaccinated lower cohort risk world. Yet it continues to occur. Strange times indeed. The individual state's differential COVID policy decisions are amazing incubators of pandemic responses, as are the university's choices. Who is thinking about the students' well-being? If campus closes, by definition, these students have to head home. Is that not sending all of these positive cases around the country home if they're there? When does the risk reality finally enter the calculus? Is Cornell going to reimburse these students for time missed and the inability to access resources that they have paid for? A lot of questions. Number five, from the New England Journal of Medicine, quote, among patients in a large Israeli healthcare system who had received at least one dose of BNT162B2 mRNA vaccine, the estimate incidence of myocarditis was 2.13 cases per 100,000. The highest incidence was among male patients between the age of 16 and 29 years. Most cases of myocarditis were mild or moderate in severity. Whitberg et al. 2021. Another study from Europe had similar evidence. Fultran et al. 2021. Number six, from another study, we see more data that at least against Delta spreading out the two doses of the mRNA vaccine provided vastly better immunity over time. Grunau, G-R-U-N-A-U, et al. 2021. This is likely unuseless data now, as we are going to have to eventually switch to an Omicron-based vaccine in 2022 to slow down the rapid spread of this new evasive mutant. Now comes the question. Do you eventually get one dose of an Omicron-based vaccine or two, and then how far apart? Oh boy, the problems that this variant has developed overnight. Number seven, bereaved children. This is a tragic reality that we have seen play out real time in our office. From the New York Times coronavirus update, we see that an estimated 167,000 children have lost parents or caregivers to COVID-19. For every four COVID deaths in the U.S., it is estimated that one child is left without a caregiver a loss that has more severely affected minority communities and frontline workers who were unvaccinated before vaccines were available at the beginning of the pandemic. If that caregiver was a primary source of family income, or even half of it, the family will be in a precarious position moving forward financially. This is not even to mention the social and emotional toll of the death of the parent. This is tragic for a child on all levels. Number eight. Dr. Wu wrote tonight's article on the importance of cytotoxic killer T-cells in the fight against Omicron and any future variants. These cells have a natural capability to kill any cell that has viral particles attached to it. These cells and other T and B cells will give us the ability to handle most variants to the level that moderate to severe diseases are rare after vaccination and or natural infection in the past. You may contract Omicron as it has evaded the antibodies that you made to date, but it will likely be milder, shorter illness based on your T-cell activity. 
Another study in preprint has excellent data that the cytotoxic T cells from Delta are well conserved against Omicron. They state, quote, this analysis examined if the previously identified viral epitopes targeted the CD8 positive T cells in these individuals are mutated in the newly described Omicron variant of concern. Within this population, only one low prevalence epitope from the spike protein restricted to two HLA alleles are found in two of 30 or 7% of these individuals contained a single amino acid change associated with Omicron VOC. These data suggest that virtually all individuals with existing anti-SARS-CoV-2 CD8-positive T-cell responses should recognize the Omicron variant of concern, and that SARS-CoV-2 has not evolved extensive T-cell escape mutations at this time. This comes from Red et al. 2021. Folks, this is likely the most important study in this newsletter. This is likely the main reason behind milder disease in individuals that get reinfected with COVID Omicron and have symptoms. Remember that when we review all of this data regarding waning antibodies and reinfected individuals, we have to take and look at the totality of the immune response to have a full picture of risk and safety. This is critical stuff. Number nine, the Pfizer vaccine for the two to five year old age group is on hold till sometime to mid late 2022. The good news is this age group has very, very little risk of making a problem, so this change is not that terribly traumatic. Section 2. The Atlantic offers a very good article to learn from, but they also sometimes push an agenda that doesn't make complete sense based on the data that is emerging. In a piece by Rachel Gutman, we see the beginnings of another fear-based hypothetical reality to drive more booster vaccinations than those who were previously infected and vaccinated or just vaccinated. The article goes off the rails to discuss individual incredible hospital overwhelm scenarios in the United States that is at its highest vaccination status of the entire pandemic. The data is not supporting any of these contentions of hospital overwhelm or severity based on all emerging reports with Delta and Omicron. The only major risk for a bad outcome remains comorbid disease, age, and unvaccinated naive status. That is a very small population now comparatively as almost all of these individuals have either succumbed to the disease or been vaccinated. Witness the statistics on age, comorbid disease, and vaccination status. High rates of shots and boosters have already occurred in all these high-risk groups, especially the age predilection group. Thus, by definition, we are very, very likely to not have these major problems and very far away from a state of hospital overwhelm. Please read these articles carefully for the agenda that is behind them. The data and real-time events do not support these contentions unless Omicron is something entirely different than what it appears to be. All right, folks, that ends these two COVID audio newsletters for the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter. I appreciate your time, appreciate your hour, your listening, and everything else that you bring to the table. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare provider professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. I hope you all have a great day.